Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Engaging the Phenomenon. And today uh, we have a special guest. He's an author, researcher, lecturer. Uh, I, I call him a phenomenon as well. Uh, Anthony Peake. Uh, welcome, Anthony. Thank you, James. What a, what an opening uh, statement that is. I hope I can live up to that. <laughs> yeah, well, a, a phenomenon. Yes, I like that. You're for anybody uh, watching and listening. Uh, you know, Anthony has written uh, books like The Hidden Universe uh, that deals with non-human intelligence, uh, The Daemon, uh, uh, Cheating the Ferryman. Uh, you know, if you're interested in, in in like very deep consciousness studies that are. Uh, not just deep consciousness studies, but thoroughly researched and uh, with sources cited, which I, is so important. And I mean, you know, you could read one book and and be, you know, reading through the sources for, for months, you know, to, to back up the research. And I think that is so important. And I appreciate that. So everybody definitely go on Amazon and, and just type in Anthony Peake. You're going to see all his books come up. He has, a, you know, his own books. He's a, a um, he's read some on Audible, so you can listen to and uh, or if you like to read, you can read Kindle or paperback. So uh, but, you know, again, thank you so much for coming on, Anthony. And I just um, I would like to start off with the discussion on non-human intelligence. So, you know, given uh, a lot of people listening to this are going to be maybe UFO researchers, but also people interested in, in consciousness studies. So um, in in regards to the UFO phenomenon and uh, non-human intelligence, what are your thoughts on, uh, let's say, actual entities, right? Like uh, of an individual or uh, uh, sentience. Mm. So let's let's start with that because I know it, in your book, um, the Hidden Universe, you talk a lot about egregorials. Right. So let's actually let's start there. What What is an egregorial? It's effectively a creative thought form. Um, it's something that in magical traditions has been one of the aims of magicians for centuries, right through from the creation of tulpas, which is one of the themes that you get within um, Bon Buddhism in Tibet. And it's the idea that people can collectively create a thought form that then becomes independent of them. And it goes right back to quantum mechanics uh, and the concept of wave-particle duality and what's called a collapse of the wave function. Now, by this, what we mean is that before um, a subatomic particle is measured or observed, it's a wave. And then on being observed or being measured, it becomes a point particle, which has a location in three-dimensional space. Now, this has always been a great mystery because it suggests that there's a direct relationship between not only consciousness, but consciousness intention and the creation of reality around us. Now, this is something that esotericists have known, as I said, for generations. I mean, for example, um, uh, uh, John Dee, the famous British alchemist come magician in uh, the uh, uh, early Tudor period, you know, under the reign of Elizabeth I, he was trying to bring out egregorials entities from elsewhere and it is argued that he managed to create some of these things now the question that then fascinated me was was well if this is this is the case can this be extrapolated to an analysis of um experiences of entities and i was particularly interested in a number of cases which we won't have time to go into but just one very quickly 
was a case that took place in the early 1970s in uh, Toronto when a group of academics got together and they were interested by Ouija boards and the way in which Ouija boards, you know, the, it's obviously there's an intention somewhere along the line that somebody may be pushing the, the board or pushing and spelling out the letters. But what they did was they then decided that what they would do, the group of individuals, would that they would create a mythical ghost. And what they did was one of them went away and she wrote a narrative of a gentleman called um, Tom, Thomas William or Thomas Aylesford, who lived in Warwickshire in the Midlands in the UK. And he lived in the reign of Elizabeth I. No, sorry, uh, during the just after the English Civil War, so the 1670s, 1680s. And he had had a loveless marriage, and then he meets a young gypsy girl, falls in love with her. She then he gets found out, and he kills himself. So it never happened. He never existed. But they then started to try and communicate with this entity using Ouija, and then they had manifestations. Not only did they have manifestations, but this being was communicating with them, and table turning took place, the whole thing. And if anybody's interested, there's a fascinating video on YouTube where you see um uh the 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 owens and the other group members of the group on live tv in canada and you see the table moving now this to me suggests that whatever these things are whatever these entities are there is a direct symbiotic relationship between our intentions of them and the way they manifest and this can be seen in so many ways because they are very culturally biased. You know, there's always been this idea that UFO entities have um, culturally mirrored society. You know, so, for instance, you know, in the 1890s, you had the great airship flap in America and the entities at that time were human. And many of them spoke in German because, of course, people could understand the concept of an airship and be slightly more advanced than their technology. And I believe this is what's taking place at the moment, is that we are in some way co-creating these, but they are independent of us. And just very quickly, the word egregorial is from the Greek egregorus, which means watcher. And it goes right back into history. And the idea that there are, there are these watcher entities that use us to come through. So basically, that's the principle of the egregorial model. But I also argue that, in fact, reality is egregorial as well. And I call it egregorial reality, that we also co-creating the reality we exist within as well. Yeah, and that's that I, I'll call that in kind of like the bigger picture view, right? Like the bigger picture of consciousness. Um, but so I'm interested in your thoughts on like the 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 more like small form thinking consensus reality as um just say like some of these uh, ufo occupants if i can call them that right as being like an individual sentience unto themselves mm. yeah they're, they're both i mean that that's the thing that intrigues me because they seem to have independent action and of course one cannot get over the issue that there is physical evidence of ufos mm. you know so you, you can't get round that but if we then extrapolate to the broader model that also would would support within it. Um, but for me, you know, it's always the anthropological aspects of it and the sociological aspects of it. And if you look back over the history of ufology and the history of uh, close encounters of the third kind throughout history, as I say, they seem to culturally move with our anticipations. For example, you know, in the 1950s, you had the Nordics, you know, yeah. and it seemed because and we had the Space Brothers. And of course, an awful lot of the incidents that were recorded in that time seem to be, you know, what Jacques Vallée and various other people would call the cosmic joker. It's as if there's a kind of a game being played that the entities 
raise our expectations of them, of our expectations of them, just to then be ridiculous. You know, I recall the famous case because I've been into UFOs since the early 1960s. And I remember a very famous case, you know, of the guy that um, is taken off by a UFO and he's taken into space and he's given pancakes by yeah. the aliens. And well, the funny thing was they had his dog with him and the dog, when it came back, was looking really weird. And he said that was because they left the dog outside the spaceship. Now, clearly, that couldn't have happened in the way it was described. But this guy had an experience. Then we have, the, you know, the Hopville go goblins, you know, and they're completely different again from the standard greys and the greys then start to manifest you know sometime in the late 1960s 1970s and of course then extrapolated from the um uh the communion by whitley streeby you know and that whole imagery but of course the image of the gray uh in my book as you know i discussed that that particular image is virtually universal and has been universal since you know there's there were recently cave um paintings found in northern india in, in the Rissa state and inside the cave paintings, there are entities that we would identify as being greys within the paintings. So there is something more to this. What it is, I don't know. Maybe we'll never know, but there's a great game going on. And that's why the great Jacques Vallée is the guy that really started that interest, the idea of the, the linkage between the supernatural and aliens. And of course, Jeremy, uh, uh, Jeff Kripal as well, you know, the various other people, Diane Paluska, you know, there's a lot of people that are writing in this area at the moment. And it's something that really fascinates me. Yeah, I'm, um, you know, and, and speaking to the idea of the uh, egregorial, uh, that gets a little bit into uh, John, John Wheeler's uh, per participatory universe, it right? It does indeed. Absolutely. Yes. And, and with that, you know, I, I've been involved in something, um, you know, it has a bad slant to it because of the association, but CE5, right, or human initiated contact. Um, a lot of people are using like the idea of contact modalities, like you mentioned before, it's not something new. That's almost just like one of the newer frameworks in the last few decades of talking about this almost the same kind of thing because you know a group of people will go out and do like a meditation with the intention for contact with non-human intelligence and it uh and and there's interactions right and mm. and th th there are interactions that are not just uh subjective per se of course there's a huge subjective element but then there's a component which is objective which could be recorded on camera and you know mm. I saw this actually happen when I when I spoke at Contact in the Desert last summer in, in Southern California. And there were a group of individuals that had gone out to to, to make contact. Um, and they came back with film on their uh, their cameras and phones of moving objects. Yeah. yeah. And I found that absolutely extraordinary. I'd never seen that done before. And I thought, this is it. They're anticipating it. And it right. happens, right. you know, it's, and as you said, you know, it's brilliant that somebody would mention John Wheel's participatory universe, which is something I've written about extensively over the last two decades. And it's only now really becoming into vogue. And, you know, the idea that we we co-create reality. Um, and of course, just for everybody listening here, if anybody's a word, John Wheeler was one of the world's leading um, quantum physicists and cosmologists. And he actually had this incredibly called the delayed choice experiment, whereby he, he proved scientifically that not only do we bring into existence the, the world around us by our observation of it, 
but he could prove theoretically that we bring into existence quasars that existed two, three, four billion years ago by something called gravitational lensing and an application of the twin slit experiment. And this is extraordinary stuff. And it means that it kind of, it almost, it almost goes round on itself, why I think this is all so magical. And uh, funnily enough, I was only talking to a really close friend of mine earlier on today about this, the way in which, and 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 she's she's a, an out-of-body person, and she's writing a new book on out-of-body experiences. And we were discussing about the way in which when you go into out-of-body states, you are technically creating that reality when you're in a hypnagogic state, when you're in a dreaming state, and you're create you're creating it around you. But there are elements of it that you have not created. There are beings you will encounter in an out-of-body experience or a near-death experience, which is the subject of my, my new book, that, you know, seem to again anticipate what we want. I mean, for instance, in near-death experiences, you know, have the being of light. I had occurs. that. I had that personally. Yeah. Really? Yes. Okay. And it was, yeah, that's, a, we'll talk about that another time because okay. that's, that's a whole conversation, but absolutely. So I, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. When is that book going to come out? Um, it's going to be out um, early 2025. Okay. Wow. So we got a ways. So people in that time can read your other 12 books. <laughs> yeah. At the moment, at the moment, I've got 250,000 words for this book of notes and everything else. And I have to reduce that down to around about 90 to a hundred thousand. That's the challenge. Um, and I'm doing reducing it down for a specific reason because I've discovered, you know, that big books, people don't tend to want to read. They tend Sorry. to want to yeah. be smaller. Um, so I might come out with two books or I might just reduce it all down. But, uh, but yes, that's going to be the subject of it, but I've been writing about near death experiences again for two decades so. and and you know even uh robert monroe the Mo monroe institute who kind of popularized the out-of-body experience at least the term that that modern mm -hmm. terminology had reported in his books that he would uh, encounter these entities right that he explained again his perspective i'm not saying i share the perspective it's an interesting one that comes up time and time again that he's encountering these entities that that psychically feed on uh humans Right. Yeah. So and that and that's a theme that comes up um, in in it, it does. It's, it's again, I know we're slightly getting off topic here, but it's um, um, a fascinating idea that somehow they fee feed off fear. They fear. Yes. The fear itself, the, the, whatever neurochemically we create is something they feed off, you know, and again, there is a guy called Paul Eno, if you know Paul Eno, who's quite close to he's up in Rhode Island. The name sounds familiar. I think okay. I probably heard he's, it in one of your books. That's... Oh, he's a fascinating researcher. And again, he does the work, you know, where he says that the, the entities themselves are created out of plasma right. and they, they manifest themselves via plasma. Um, and he's been a, a ghost hunter and researcher for many, many years. And he's actually seen these manifestations take place. But going back again to uh, Robert Monroe, you know, again, I wrote a book called The Out-of-Body Experience a few years ago. And I researched in great depth the the what happened with Robert Monroe. And it's quite intriguing. I mean, he used to travel to a place um, where he used to encounter a version of himself, which he called I There. Wow. And I There. And there was an extraordinary case when um he because he used to just drop in to either's consciousness who was a version of him living somewhere else in this other place and he said he once found himself he, he went into an out-of-body estate estate floated up and the next minute he finds himself in either's body and he looks out of either's eyes 
And he's in a business meeting in his house and he's having a business meeting with a businessman and he's pitching for a business. And he doesn't know what he needs to talk about because suddenly he's dropped in to somebody else's body. And he said he could see either's wife looking at him going, what's wrong with you? Now, of course, we know from mediumship, there is a term called drop-ins. Yeah. Where entities drop in when a medium is doing one thing, another entity or something, a presence will come in and take over. And again, this all the phenomenon, the one of the things I think is the most important thing, and I, I'd, I'd, I think I'm one of the few writers that's doing this, we can't restrict ourselves to just the UFO phenomenon. Right. This phenomenon is massive and it touches all areas of human experience. Yeah. I, you know, you almost read my mind there. Cause I want, I was going to caveat that in when you finished saying what you were saying, but you did it for me was that, you know, I, I think it's more apparent today that, you know, you can't um, when we're talking about the UFO phenomenon, all of these things intersect, all of these things are coming into the same conversation and it's not just like us here on the outside talking about this, right? Um, you know, obviously, you know, Jacques Vallée was um, a little bit involved in the Stargate program, the remote viewing program. He was assisting them with that. He was involved with uh, NIDS, the uh, National Institute for Discovery Science, which Bigelow was researching UFOs. But this stuff kept coming up. So Vallée especially was saying that we can't, you know, um, let's not just try to compartmentalize it because it's easy to have an easy conversation about metal discs and, and uh, you know, flesh and blood extraterrestrial beings, something stranger and more extraordinary is going on here. So let's look at all the data as it is and, and have that inform our research. And again, you know, this, it's like I said, this is not an outside conversation of just woo woo researchers, mm. you know, the department of defense, uh, the DIA, uh, they were generating, uh, you know, research reports on this stuff and slides, uh, infamously slide nine, which is talking about, you know, non-human intelligence and its uh, apparent psychotronic effects, but also what we would call psychic effects, uh, remote influence. And again, I have the, the slide actually here. I always keep it around and it's talking about wow. all these effects. This is a DOD slide from ATIP. Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program. And what's important here, it says, what was considered phenomena is now quantum physics. Mm. Because these researchers had no choice, you know, for the DIA, had no choice but to start cataloging all this stuff because it was what it was what was occurring during their investigation into UFOs. So it's 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 connected, right? And and we have to look at it in a bigger picture frame to to better understand it, I think. I think you've hit the nail on the head. I think one of the major issues, and I'm sorry for just butting in there. No, go ahead. One of the major issues, one of the bees in my bonnet, is that, you know, the term quantum physics and quantum mechanics is dropped into new age parlance all the time right, right. without necessarily understanding the subtleties of exactly what quantum mechanics is actually telling us about the true nature of reality. Now, I very much make it my business to understand as far as I can as a non-mathematician what quantum mechanics is telling us. And I have a whole library of books on quantum mechanics. I've done courses on quantum mechanics and everything else as well. So I, I do understand the principles. And it worries me sometimes that people get too carried away with it because you don't need to. You know, as Richard Feynman said, it's, it's, it's bloody weird anyway. You know, yeah. whatever we are dealing here, and I find it extraordinary, the materialist reductionist physicists, 
will happily and glibly say that anything that can happen will happen, as Brian Cox does in one of his books, but will be a denial of the implications of those statements. Right. You know, the idea, I do not believe in telepathy. I do not believe in precognition. But I believe that in Everett's many worlds interpretation as a solution for the cosmic anthropic principle, because there is only two options available. You know, as John Wheeler argued, you know, the universe seems to have been fine tuned to the evolution of consciousness right from the very first nanoseconds of the Big Bang. Even the balance of matter and antimatter had to be slightly more matter than antimatter for the universe to come into existence. Now, either the universe got it right first time for, for, for consciousness to evolve, or there are billions and trillions of universes, and we just happen to live in the Goldilocks zone where, yeah. where we should be. You know, there's a famous... Um, line by i love quoting this one it's um by um douglas adams the english writer and he he mocks in one of his novels i think it's the one of the uh one of his later novels where there's a puddle in the ground and the puddle's just lying there and it's thinking to itself and it's thinking god isn't the universe amazing here i am lying in a puddle that's exactly the shape of my body mm -hmm. It's yeah. got to prove that there's design going on and the sun comes out and he evaporates, <laughs> you know. Um, and I thought that was a perfect dissing of the cosmic anthropic principle, but it's so flawed because the implication is, well, still how, where did the rain come from? Where did the hole come from? There's, there's lots of other questions that need to be asked there. We need to build bridges on this. There are a group of my friends and I, we are we are doing real research into DMT, dimethyltryptamine and entities. Um, I've got friends who are, who are involved in the research at Imperial College in London at the moment, where the volunteers are taking DMT and encountering entities. Not only are they encountering entities, but the entities are reacting to them. Yeah. I'll, give an, I'll give an example. One of my associates, he... Um, took the DMT intravenously, finds himself in the DMT cage, um, and an entity comes over to him and prods through the cage and said, you shouldn't be doing it this way. He then comes back into his normal physical state. Two weeks later, he takes the DMT again, goes back, he's in the same location, the same entity comes over, pokes him again and said, I told you last time, this is not how you should be doing it. Now, as he said to me, now either that entity was independent of me in some way and had self-motivation because he was telling me things I didn't want to hear. So if it was part of my subconscious, there's something far more complex going on here. So, you know, we have the machine elves, we have lots of these areas all overlap. Did he get an impression of, um, of how, uh, how he should be doing it at all, or there was nothing after that? No, though, though unfortunately it, it, it didn't then tell him how he should be doing it. I suppose the argument is, that he they were doing it chemically right so whereas there are ways of doing it endogenously um for example in one of my books i discuss how there is evidence that the brain synthesizes endogenous dimethyltryptamine from um within the pineal gland um and how that process may happen neurologically and neurochemically um and again it is fascinating that if it is this case, because we know that DMT is in the human body, we know it's in the stomach, we know it's in the liver, we know it's in the, the spine. But it's recently been discovered, you may be aware, you probably are, research at the University of Michigan uh, in 2017, I think it was, there's a Japanese-American researcher called Jimo Borjijin, 
and they discovered for the first time um, DMT in the pineal gland of live rats. Um, so that's the first time that DMT has been discovered within the mammalian brain. Now, the question is, why was it there? Now, there is a counter argument to say that it's a neurotransmitter. And as Rick Strassman said, you know, in his book, The um, the uh, the God Molecule, um, he turned around and said, you know, that DMT is our reality modulator. So what we need to realize is that the reality we perceive is being modulated by a chemical. So everything we perceive, including the aliens, is being modulated by something at a different level of reality. I hate to use the term dimensions because I get very annoyed yeah. when non-mathematicians use the term dimensions. It's a very specific term. But there is still the argument that there could be entities outside, say, in the fifth dimension of space-time who can somehow manipulate reality in such a way to come into this reality and will, could use the DMT as a facilitator to come through in some way or other. It's all very fascinating. Right. Well, and it's, it's um, I think, kind of like the idea that, you know, the DMT augments our perception in the way where we can um, perceive higher dimensional realities, uh, higher spatial realities, you know, that are, they're there, but we're, our, you know, our senses are, are limited for our survival capability. Yeah. So we're not necessarily perceiving things that are there there all the time we're just not interfacing with them um and well i use the argument in terms of how perception works because you know i have a great deal in my books about perception how vision works how the brain processes inwardly the visual system in the darkest part of the brain and how that not how it works because we don't know how it works right. and anybody that says they know how vision works is nonsense you know the mechanisms but you don't know how the brain then recreates a visual world that's three-dimensional from an image taken from the back of the retina which is inverted and postage stamp sized but i use the idea now it's again people like uh aldous huxley as you know i wrote a book called opening the doors of perception which is based upon the aldous huxley ideas and the idea that you know we we Oh, the brain is an attenuator. The brain is there to take out information, as uh, Henri Bergson, the French philosopher, argued. In which case, as you quite rightly say, we are programmed to exist and survive within this attenuation, this um, simulacra, this, this creation that the external universe is, that we think is somehow out there. And it's not out there. It's still in here. And I use the argument of um, the uh, electromagnetic spectrum and how small a part of the electromagnetic spectrum we see. And this is the bit we think is the visual world and everything is just like that. When we know that the color red doesn't exist, it's just a particular, what the brain interprets as a particular vibrational state of electromagnetic energy is red, but red doesn't exist anywhere. No. And I argue that, imagine that the electromagnetic spectrum from, um, from gamma rays to radio waves um, is starts in a small in the is the length of the Mississippi River, which starts in a small lake up in Minnesota and comes all the way down from the center of America, comes out in the Gulf of Mexico. What we believe to be the visual system and the visual universe is one and a half inches, about eight miles south of Hannibal, Missouri. The rest of it is terra incognita. We don't know what it is. Our visual systems are not attuned to do that. You know, it was a very famous philosophical paper written a few years ago. What is it like to be a bat? You know, the visual system to how a bat perceives reality is completely different to us. But there's no 
you can't be um, chauvinistic about this. Our viewpoint is no more valid than the viewpoint of a rat or a, or a bat, or, you know. So we really have to start, and I hate the term, we start to be thinking outside of the box here. You know, we need to be joining the dots a little bit more, not just sitting there going, because my science cannot explain it, it doesn't exist. Yeah. Um, and we can't even explain consciousness. But the argument is, oh, we can't explain consciousness now and how inanimate matter creates consciousness and in the brain. But we will be able to in the future. This is a term it's called promissory materialism. You know, I'm sorry, it was um, uh, Popper that said that or John Eccles. It was John Eccles, I think, promissory materialism. But the idea is that you can't, you know, consciousness is a completely different thing from an epiphenomenon which you have within chemical reactions. You know, one could argue that water is very different from oxygen and hydrogen, but oxygen together and hydrogen together, who are gases at a normal temperature, put them together and they become a liquid and a liquid that has wetness. And the wetness is an epiphenomenon of bringing these molecules together, these atoms together to form the molecule. And the argument is, and this is the same with consciousness, that, you know, there's a certain complexity and a certain way in which molecules come together in the brain, reacting in electromagnetic fields, and spontaneously consciousness comes out. And my argument is, what by the addition of one quark, you know, by the addition of one molecule, by the addition of one bit of complexity, but it's completely, you know, consciousness is non-physical. Consciousness does have, has no extension in space. Consciousness is a self-aware something that supposedly comes out of inanimate matter. As Chalmers said, you know, David Chalmers said, you know, it's the hard problem of science. And we have to look at this. We can't pretend that consciousness, like the eliminative materialist, like Daniel Dennett argue, that consciousness doesn't exist. It only, they, and they genuinely believe that consciousness, we are fooling ourselves into thinking we're consciousness, be conscious beings, just because it doesn't fit in with the science. We're like the medieval schoolmen with their epicycles, trying to explain retrograde motion of the outer planets in the 14th and 13th centuries. They had all these models for it, epicycles, and technically they worked, but they weren't the answer. The answer was that the sun was the center, the, uh, the sun was the center of, the, um, of the solar system. Then everything worked properly. And I think our science now has gone off on a limb and we're not even, we don't understand dark matter. We don't understand dark energy. We know that 94% of the universe is missing, but we don't know what it is. We're suffering from this massive hubris that somehow we are the epitome of science. And of course, we're not. We're not even at first base, but we are putting ourselves, categorizing ourselves in a specific materialist reductionist worldview. And everything that's outside, you can't even look at. And if you do, you lose tenure. Well, and, you know, that's that's what I find so fascinating about um the ufo subject right i i've often said that uh you know ufos are like the the bridge between physics and metaphysics because you have these uh physical object a ufo entities whatever even a crash retrieval you know you have objects that you can record on camera you can track on radar but they're demonstrating properties which we would consider metaphysical telepathy um teleportation right so it's a bridge there and i think what's going on right now with the current uap disclosure if i can call it that the current ufo disclosure process is that it's acclimizing our society to this much bigger picture 
in which I, I think that the, the consciousness is the really kind of big thing, but this is like the stepping stone to that. And that's why I think it's so important because the, the UFO disclosure and acknowledgement and confirmation is allowing people to have that pivot that we have this physical object that's doing X, Y, Z. We can observe it clearly technologically. Right. Um, so that's why I, I find the UFO fascinating. So, um, the, the UFO subject so uh, fascinating and important. And, you know, it's something I had firsthand experience with. So I understand it on that inherent level. Um, because again, uh, you know, almost similar to John Mack's passport to the cosmos. Mm. Once you have that kind of firsthand experience, there's, there's no going back. You just have a, a like a gnosis, right. An innate knowledge um, through this experience of some of that. The universe is much, much greater um and you know again some of these uh you know ufo reports and accounts involve uh crash retrieval and retrieval of technology and potentially entities uh i don't i don't want to go too deep on the woods on that in this discussion but um more so just to the idea of um do you think that we have something to learn from interactions with non-human intelligence i would think self-evidently even if even if it was just so they could tell us their ontology they could tell us what they are or what they think they are you know it, it is of profound importance because we live in a universe that's, that's, that's so vast you know and so curious and strange and these entities are part of that and one would assume that they have been round round maybe longer than we have in some way of course there could be a counter argument to say that, that we are so were nothing more than slime on their boots, you know, that we we are we are so non-thinking that they wouldn't wish to communicate with us anyway. But that self-evidently doesn't seem to be the case. The very fact that they are interfacing with us, you know, and again, you know, I was discussing earlier with this friend of mine and we were discussing about hallucinations and how people, you know, your whole world, you said your whole worldview changes. All you need to have is one esoteric, strange, peculiar experience and your whole reference goes. And people then think you're insane or think you're weird or think you're odd. But you have had a something, you have seen something that as far as you're concerned was real. And my counter argument to that always is, we don't even know what real is anyway. So to just dismiss an hallucination, is ridiculous because again the same argument goes that science is not at first base in understanding what hallucinations actually are we don't know you know i've always argued that you hallucinate an entity that entity there are two hallucinations going on there if the entity is standing in front of you there's a a, a, a hallucination of the entity itself but there's also an hallucination of occlusion because the entity is blocking your vision of what is behind the entity. So there are two, two things going on here now. And then you have the third thing. If it is brain created, how does the brain project into external three-dimensional reality, an image and who in the brain is doing that? Who is the script writer? Who's the bricoleur that's creating that narrative? You know, it's all people 
I always think that what happens is people see a simplistic solution. And then scientists come along and they come along with a more complex solution, but they don't dig any deeper. I, I call it idiomatic science. Sorry, idiopathic science, I should say, whereby we just we don't really know what it is, but we'll give it a nice label, preferably Latin or Greek to confuse <laughs> people. And, you know, it's like I, I deal a lot with something called um, idiopathic um, epilepsy. Individuals that have have epileptic seizures, have epileptic hallucinations and everything else. And they get diagnosed. And the doctor will say, oh, yes, yes, you've got idiopathic epilepsy. And you go away and think, oh, I've got idiot. Oh, at least I've got a diagnosis. Idiopathic means we haven't got a bloody clue what it is. That's what the word means. <laughs> and it's the same with science. We don't know. And we don't understand even the basic principles of wave particle duality. We don't. We don't understand what's going on there. How can it be a particle and a wave? And how can it become a particle or wave depending upon whether it's measured or observed? You know, that is impossible. But there's so many other impossibilities within science that and perception and perceptions is one of them. And these entities and things we see is another, you know, because you, you know, whatever your ever happened to you, you know, somebody can tell you so the cows come home, you know what you saw. Right. You know, um, it wasn't marsh gas or whatever, you know. Um, and I just find the hubris is extraordinary. We're missing a huge chance here. And we need to interview people more, the experiences. We need to we need to speak more to the people outside of the neurotypicals, what I call the um outside of what I inside what I call the Huxleyan spectrum. The people who are at the periphery of perception, whose perceptual skills move into the areas that we normally can't perceive. Temporal, people who experience temporal lobe epilepsy, people who experience migraine, people who experience schizophrenia, people who experience autism, people who experience um, Gershwin syndrome, people who experience um, uh, uh, dementia. All of these areas, the doors of perception are opened and the attenuating ability of the brain is taken away. And what do they see? They see entities. They see ghosts. They see weird things. My mother saw a grey. This story, have you heard of this story? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Do you want me to repeat it? Yeah, or? sure. Absolutely. Okay. Because this is extraordinary. My mother was, not, was never interested in my interest in UFOs. Never. She would poo-poo it. Complete nonsense. She lost her eye with malignant melanoma, so she had she was losing her eyesight. She was also sadly developing dementia, which I think is incredibly important because I got the diagnosis. I had to tell the doctors that she was showing signs of dementia. They were missing it completely. And the reason it was because she was showing signs of something called Charles Bonnet syndrome, which I'll touch on to in a little bit. But she phones me up one morning. And she's really quite disturbed. And she said, I went to sleep last night. Now, I'll roll back because it's stranger than this. The night before, her and her aunt, uh, a few days before, my her and my aunt were walking onto the village they lived, or my, where my mother lived. And they saw a UFO. My mother saw a UFO. She saw a smoke uh, circle move and then go into a, uh, a what she called like a hoop and then fire off towards North Wales, nearby where, where she lived. And I know that the object was real because a friend of mine contacted me and she saw the object that day from the same location. So clearly the object was real. It was in three dimensional space. 
But anyway, a few days later, she phones me up in a, a real state and she said she woke up in the middle of the night and she was in a state. She didn't describe it as this, but it was self-evidently a state of, um, of sleep paralysis. She couldn't move. But she said, I noticed that the door to my bedroom was open and it's never I always shut it. It shouldn't be open. And she said, I was looking at the door and I couldn't move. And then she said she saw three spindly fingers come around the corner of the door. And what she described, this little being, like a child with huge black eyes, as two holes for a nose and a slit for a mouth, looked round the door, saw that she'd spotted it, and it dodged back. And then she went off into the hypnagogic or hypnopompic reverie that she was in. And then she said, Tony, what did I see? And of course, I tried to calm her down and everything is your imagination and yeah, everything else. Yeah. But she saw a grey. She wouldn't know a grey if it bit her on the backside. But she was developing Charles Bonnet syndrome. And Charles Bonnet syndrome is hallucinations where you see entities. And it is a direct relationship with, with um, the development of dementia and the Louis bodies, the Louis body, um, the destruction of the Louis bodies inside the, 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 the brain, inside the neurons. So there's something distinctly happening here people do see these things and they are real as real as anything else can be and we need to listen to them yeah and um a good example of somebody um trying to look at the science of it again this is early stages and this is preliminary uh but dr gary nolan um along with dr kit green uh, they were doing a study on the caudate putainment, which is a, a place in the in the brain by the the basal ganglia, and um, you know they almost found it by accident um, with with the help of Hal Putoff, was that you know people were having hallucinations, people were having UFO events, and um, they were doing MRIs and they found that a hyperconnectivity in this area of the brain, which uh, ends up uh, being involved with intuition, which at first they, they didn't really know, but they looked and they found research papers that said, yeah, this, you know, it's, it's involved with, you know, how your movement and being able to coordinate like that and intuitive uh, high performance and high intelligence. And, and, and through this, they ended up finding that, a number of these people that were in the remote viewing programs also had this hyperconnectivity. Wow. Yes. Right. And, and, wow. but it's also people having UAP encounters. Mm. Um, and, you know, so could this potentially be an enhanced um, intuition uh, and where you're able to perceive um, a broader spectrum Um, you know, again, it's prelim preliminary stages, but then they had the study, uh, being recreated or peer reviewed by Harvard. And, you know, Gary always talks about you have to do the preliminary research and everything. So they were looking at individuals uh, on the autism and um, schizophrenia spectrums, right? And and their perceptions and, and, their, and the involvement with this. So that's the studies are continuing, but it's again, still early stages, but that's a, a good example of how, you know, the research is being continued. Um, but, you know, I, I wanted to to bring up the idea of um, precognition, right? Because even I had I had something, uh, you know, during my whole, I can call a string of experiences because it was a number of things that happened. Um, and but one of them ended up being this kind of um, 
you can, I don't know if it was a precognitive dream or if it was a, you know, if the UFO intelligence implanted it, I'm not sure, but the idea of, okay, if you have a, a precognitive event, whether you're awake or you're sleeping that, you know, where did it come from? Right. And that, that, um, that experience is, is essentially information. So there's information, number one, where did it come from? And number two, how, you know, how did you receive it? You know? Mm. So what are your thoughts on um, precognition? Okay. Um, What I'm best known for is a concept known as cheating the ferryman. And in simple terms, cheating the ferryman is arguing we're all living in a simulation of our lives and we live multiple lives like a person playing a third person computer game has multiple options throughout their lives. I argue that there is strong evidence for this um, from simulation theory and lots of other areas. So the, the, the evidence is there. And as you know, as you said earlier on in my books, I give all the references. So if somebody wants to check out my conclusions, just go to the papers that I cite. And put simply, I argue that we have lived this life many times. Um, And there are two elements to our consciousness. There is the Eidolon, which is the in-game sprite that lives for one game, lives one life, and then dies. But there is the game player, which is the consciousness that carries through from game to game and is effectively our life guide. I call that the daemon. Now, I argue that demonic consciousness um, can be accessed through certain neurological conditions that people on the Huxley spectrum that I was talking about before. And within demonic consciousness is the knowledge and memories of all your other previous lives. It's just, you can't access it. I, I just want to start just, I, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but we're, we're talking here about daemon and people. I don't want them to get the impression of demonic, like a demon. I, it's That's a bigger conversation. I understand, but just, so yeah, people just to be nice are... about this, the word daemon was literally demonized. Right. Yes. Da- daemon yeah. is a term that is was used by the Gnostics and the ancient Greeks. Yeah. It, it's like the genius. It's the um, spiritual intelligence. Spiritual intelligence. It is your own higher self, for want of a better term. And I use the word daemon quite specifically because I'm fascinated by the the teachings of Gnosticism. Absolutely. In terms yeah. of this. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, so the daemon has lived your life many times, and and if you can access occasionally, if there's leakage through. Um, from demonic consciousness, which I which I believe exists in the non-dominant hemisphere of the brain. Um, what takes place is that you will get a flash of knowledge or remembrance of an event that's yet to take place. Now, most people will interpret this under the term of deja vu. Technically, it's not deja vu, it's deja vu, which is already lived. And the idea is that we can access elements of our own future within this simulation or elements of memories of another simulation that we have experienced, which may not come to pass because our actions then change the, 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 for want of a better term, our position within the multiverse. So as um, uh, Stephen Hawking and Thomas Hertog, I think it was Thomas Hertog, might have been Frank Hartle, but I think it was Thomas Hertog. In the last year or two of um, Hawking's life, he wrote a paper 
putting out, extrapolating out what he called the top-down hypothesis of quantum mechanics. And in this, he argued that ever since the first moment of the Big Bang, every single outcome of every single decision made by anything is already encoded within a massive, huge simulation. So this is where the term that Brian Cox uses, that anything that can happen will happen. And the argument is that we we literally collapse the wave function of each individual reality, depending upon our decisions. And we all do that. And occasionally when we collapse the wave function with other people who are nearby us, we collapse the same wave function and we evolve together or we evolve differently. But all those wave functions, some of those wave functions we will experience beforehand and that will have elements of the future. So precognition is an ability to remember. So precognition is a remembrance, literally. It's retrograde. It's something that, um, for instance, the great British playwright J.B. Priestley called FIPS, Future Influencing Past. Because in my books, I argue this, and there's so much evidence for this. Writers and creative people who use information that they glean from their own future to create plot lines. Is this um, along the lines of retrocausality? It's like retrocausality, exactly. And more precisely, for instance, you're probably aware I wrote a biography of the American science fiction writer Philip K. Dick. And in that, I the subtitle of that was A Life of Philip K. Dick, The Man Who Remembered the Future. Because I give evidence of just how Philip K. Dick knew his own future. And he said he did. You know, the, 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 like there's one classic example, and this is extraordinary. Uh, and I'm the only writer that has written about this even now. You know, I find it amazing that my Philip K. Dick book, you know, was vaguely popular, but nobody really picked up on it. In it, one of the things I found a letter that Philip K. Dick had written to a pen pal called uh, Gloria Krentz Bush in 1973, 74. And in the letter, He's he's just discussing normal things. And in the letter, he turns around and he says, last night I had a series of hypnagogic imagery. I saw undersea cities and then I saw one stark image, a portly middle-aged man lying face down between a coffee table and a settee. And then he writes in his own hand, because it's tight, but he writes in his handwriting, I think I'm becoming precognitive. So that letter, it's there, it exists, it's real. 1981, 82, early 19, February 1982, I think it was. Phil had divorced, left his wife, Tessa, or his fifth wife, but he left her and he was living on his own. And he was involved in a book club with people like Timothy Powers, the science fiction author, when he lived in, when he lived in L.A. And they used to meet every Tuesday evening. And this particular Tuesday, Phil didn't turn up. So they um, they went round to his house the next morning and they had to knock the door down. And they got into the room and Phil was lying face down between a coffee table and the settee. Oh, my God. No way. Shivers down the spine. That is absolute proof beyond any proof you can imagine that he was precognitive. Now, I spoke to Tim, pa Tim Powers, confirmed to me the circumstances because Tim was the guy that knocked the door down to get in. There were witnesses to this. Now, Phil didn't die then. He was unconscious. He'd had a stroke, but he died, I think, on the Saturday or the Sunday. Now, that's extraordinary. Now, not only that, but he has so many incidents 
in his novels where he writes a plot line and then many years later he experiences it. There's a novel called Crime My Tears, the policeman said, where he has a character go to an all night uh, gas station. And when the guy's at the gas station, um, a, a black guy comes over and asks for money. And the and the character realizes this guy is desperate. So he gives him some money. And the guy goes off. Phil goes to a gas station many years later and he's in the gas station late at night. And he goes, God, this is like my novel. All I need now is the black guy to turn up and out of the bushes came a black guy, yeah. asked for some money and he gave him the money. Now, Phil said, you can believe me or can you believe me not on that? But that happened. So I've then got example after example of novelists and writers that this happens to. It's it's universal. It happens to so many writers. This means like J.B. Priestley said, future influence past, retro, retro causality going backwards in time. But this, again, is in quantum mechanics. There is something called the interactive uh, interpretation of quantum mechanics. And in this, the guy called John Kramer. And Kramer argues that there are subatomic particles going forwards in time, waves or particles going forwards in time. But there are also ones going backwards in time. Because, of course, in quantum physics, time, the time arrow is immaterial. doesn't matter. And what he says is that there are the, the, the information is coming from the future into the past and the past into the future. Now, I've extrapolated from this and said, imagine that reality is a hologram. And what is a hologram? It's an interference pattern of two, two waves of light causing an interference pattern. Imagine that the waves coming backwards in time and the waves coming forward in time interface at the present moment, causing a holographic interference pattern, which is the present moment. And we live within that holographic pattern. Now, again, Phil argued he had something he called orthogonal time. And orthogonal time is a time that runs at right angles to this time. So there's the time flow here, but there's orthogonal time that runs off at angles. Something that was put into a very famous movie called Interstellar. Yeah, that was Remember the library sequence? Yeah. The library sequence in Interstellar? That's explaining orthogonal time, yeah. where, he's, where he's managed to get a message to his own daughter in the past by pushing the books out the bookcase. Yeah, yeah. And again, you see in that Tesseract sequence, you see how 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 it works in the sense that it's again dimensions of space time right you know you have one point and you can put it a line it's a line you then extrapolate a right from a right angle from that you end up with a square right angle from that you get a cube right angle from a cube you get what's called a tesseract yeah and it's the tesseract that he was viewing from the viewpoint of a tesseract a reality a viewpoint outside of our time scale which is mathematically possible so here we suddenly we start to look at the the science in a much more constructive way than looking at it in isolation. Because if the guys doing this science started looking at what's happening with UFOs, and I genuinely believe, and I, I may be wrong on this, but I think I am the only writer on the planet doing this. There's nobody else I know that's drawing these areas from different areas and pulling them together. And I keep bouncing up and down and saying to the world, hey, I'm here. This works. This yeah. works, guys. Will you listen to me? And everybody goes, oh, no, let's let's. Let's let's read somebody else who's who's saying they're channeling from the planet Tharg information, that kind of thing. But it does work. It's fascinating. Whether I'm right is it is, but it works for me. Works for me. Yeah. And um, 
you know, talking about the time thing, um, uh, I guess I guess I can say a popular uh, theory that's been discussed recently is that you know some of the UFO intelligence could be future humans, right? So they're mm-hmm. they're utilizing that on a technological level, uh, maybe because they have already reached that point in an understanding where they can put that into application, right? Um, not just as a theory regarding time. More interestingly, right? Um, you can extrapolate from that into the simulation argument because the original model of the simulation argument was put forward by a guy called Nick Bostrom in, I think, the 1980s or 1990s. I think he's a, he's a Swedish mathematician. I think he was at Cambridge. And Bostrom argues that, in fact, we are living in a simulation created by our own future descendants. Yeah. Now, if the future descendants have already created, if we are living in an ancestor sim that has been created by future generations, his argument is really clever. He turns around and says, he goes, if we apply Moore's law to the development of the processing power of chips, you know, Moore's law or Moore, the guy that founded Intel said about 1964, that every two years, the the, the power of processing would double. It's slowed down a little bit now. But of course, what he didn't know at that time was about quantum computing. Right. And yeah, AI. Yeah. These yeah, were things yeah. he couldn't put into his, his model. But if you throw AI into this, you really got an interesting model. Yeah. So the idea is that if we then evolve and in 200 years, the processing power will be so powerful that we would be able to simulate a universe in a bottle or whatever or in a, in a mathematically or, or within digital information. If we did do that, what would we, as an experiment, populate it with? Well, we know what we do. We create ancestor sims because that's what we have done with things like the sims. We play with it. And what would we do is we'd find ways of downloading and making the sims sentient because we'd want to see what they did, where they went. Now, imagine a scenario that there is a way in which the... um, the creators of the simulation can bring themselves into the simulation. And in this, I'm reminded of the section in the movie Vanilla Sky. Do you remember he's living his life over and over again? The character, David Ames, who is the character played by Tom Cruise. In that, he's a guy living his life over and over again. And what happens is one of the sentient programs is dropped into the simulation to talk to him. And he's in a bar and the simulation and the, the, and the, 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 it talks to him and explains to him what's happening. It's extraordinary because we obviously, I'd argue that these things that I'm saying now, people instinctively know are right because they're in the zeitgeist. They're in the Weltgeist. They are in movies. They are in so many movies now. Yeah. And it's because we are prepared. We are preparing. The simulation is preparing us. Who knows? And again, I was discussing this with my friend earlier on today that we are programming. We are being programmed to accept this 30, 40 years ago. We didn't have Oculus Rift headset. We didn't have VR. We didn't have AI. Suddenly we've got all these things now. And you go, you know, this reality, I see remind me. How do I know this is not a simulation? And you can't. There's no way you can know because your brain is the thing that is feeding you the information from external stimuli. There's a ground argument to say we are existing in a holographic mathematical universe. Not only that, but the you can do the science of this. They even know how this is being processed. It's to do with black holes 
And it's to do with the information that is lost if you drop information into a black hole. A guy called Craig Hogan at the Perimeter Institute in, um, in Ontario, in Canada, they've been doing work on this. They're looking for the pixelation of space. This is how advanced it is now becoming. But the vast majority of human beings are not aware of this. Now, you put that then into the UFO phenomenon, and it's just you and I just discussing now. Are UFOs literally people coming from our future into the past? But unlike other writers, I can do the science of this. I can say, well, you can think about it, but it's scientifically valid. You can argue how that process could work. They could use these retrograde waves and somehow travel on the retrograde waves coming back in time. And it wouldn't matter that they'd come here because, you know, there's the argument, the grandfather paradox. If I'm a time traveler and I go right. back in time, yeah. you know, or the, the movie, you know, the thing by his bootstraps. Back and to the future. Yeah. And back to the future that I could change the future by going into the past. But that's not taking into account Everett's many worlds interpretation or right. their alternatives, because all that will happen is you you tread on the butterfly. As in the butterfly effect, you tread on the butterfly or you kill your grandfather. But what happens is then you then ex you collapse the wave function of a different universe, yeah. which can accommodate the fact that your grandfather died. Right. But your problem still would be, if you think about it, you'll have still killed your grandfather. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you still which means you've you've swapped timelines, which, again, is something that has written this wonderful novel called the, Bar the Garden of the Forking Pass by uh, Jorge Borges, the Argentinian writer, which he argues the same things. And he wrote that in the 1950s. You know, this is this is part of what we believe. And of course, it's to do with the eternal return, the eternal recurrence, the concepts of Nietzsche and various other people. And my cheating the ferryman model literally can answer every single question about this model, every single one. It can explain it all. Um, and now that you've made bounce my ideas off at UFO time travelers, it makes it even more interesting. Something got over another book there. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I know you only got a minute left, but I wanted to uh, ask you one more question and that's in regards to the daemon and, um, maybe an idea of you know is it possible that some people having um you know ufo encounters um contact experiences uh even precognition or out-of-body experiences and all those i guess phenomena right are in in some way interacting with their daemon yes i'd agree i mean funnily enough um i've had two two fascinating discussions with willie streber about this and Whitley Strieber is really intrigued by my concept of the, the daemon because of his encounter um, with an entity, I think, again, took place in Toronto, uh, the, the master of the keys, I think he called it. Right, right, right. And right. this entity just appeared in his, in his hotel room and told him things. And I know that he has had tests uh, for temporal lobe liability and everything else as well. And I believe that the daemon is manipulating us sometimes maybe um in certain ways and i just wonder whether demonic communication is linked in some way with um the way we perceive entities as well as if they're almost external extrapolations of our own subconscious now what i argue in terms of how to explain this because people will turn around and say well if you live the same life over and over again how can you possibly explain past life memories for example 
you know, which is one of the major things that people say to me when they come across my work, say, yeah, but you can't explain past life recall. Well, actually, I can. Um, I argue that there is the this computer simulation idea. So you have the Edelon that lives its life once. Then you have the daemon that lives its life many times, and it plays the game for you. And, of course, what this means is the daemon is like Connor's in Groundhog Day. Every day he learns more about his environment. Every lifetime the daemon learns more about its environment or its Edelonic environment, and it uses that information to help its Edelon negotiate the, the simulation, the game, or the instantation, as Andrew Gallimore calls it. So, but I then argue that, and this is this, I can't do the science of this, but I then argue that above that, and in my new book, I'll be discussing this. And I did in my cheating the ferryman, my last book, this one here, I, in the last chapter, I discussed these ideas is that at the next level up, there's something I call the Uber daemon. And the Uber daemon is the, the memories of all of the games played by all human beings throughout history. And that entity is effectively the collection of all the daemons. So a daemon is actually an emanation of the uber daemon. And an edelon is an emanation of the, the daemon. Now, this, again, is so many esoteric traditions believe this. You know, it's always trying to get in tune with your higher self. Right. I'm doing the science of it. This is what they're trying to do. You're trying to access demonic consciousness to, to, to generate power. Now, the, the, the greater area is the equivalent of what your Carl Jung would call the collective unconscious. But I extrapolate from that and say, but it's not just Carl Jung that argued this. Within Judaism and within um, the, um, the Kabbalah, there's a concept called the Or Ein Sof. And the Or Ein Sof is the collection of all consciousnesses. Within Hinduism, there is, is Brahman. And we are all a dream of Brahman. And Brahman is everything that there is. But then I argue that then there's another level. Because every species will have its own Uberdain. And I argue that within that's why you have past life memories. Because when you're hypnotized, I know because I, I talk to professional hypnotists and friends of mine who one of them is actually a professional past life regression guy. He earns his living doing it. And he is in total agreement with what I'm saying here. He has evidence from his own research on this. What's happening is you're attuning into the uber daemon. You're, uh, you're attuning into the uber daemon all the time. So when you're hypnotized, you, your brain attunes, sleeks out and attunes into this lifetime of the humanity memory. And it just latches onto something. It'll latch onto a memory arbitrarily. And this is why people believe in reincarnation. And technically, you, reincarnation from different lives and different identities can work if you reincarnate within the uber daemon world. But when you're in the daemon world, you can only reincarnate as yourself. So you reincarnate as yourself, then you move up to reincarnate as other people, if you wish. And then, of course, the whole argument is within Buddhism and within everything else, it's to become a bodhisattva. It's to become, live the perfect life, as Connors does at the end of his, of Groundhog Day, doesn't he? He moves on. That's because he's become a perfect human being. And then you have a choice as a bodhisattva of either going back into the game to help others and become an enlightened human being, as it were, which again is cited in many, many novels and books, the idea of somebody coming back in to help others with knowledge of what's going to happen. 
But then you move on higher. And I have something I call the Godamon. And the Godamon is the consciousness of everything. It's the singular consciousness. It's what Bill Hicks said in his famous monologue. Yeah. Here's Bill, um, young man on acid suddenly realizes that energy, matter is just energy slowed down to walking pace. And we are all one consciousness experiencing itself subjectively. Now over to Bill for the weather. Yeah. That is brilliant. And it is so accurate. This again is evidence that I have that this is so ingrained within the zeitgeist, we don't even see it. Yeah, It's yeah. there in plain sight. It is so obvious. And that's the model, basically. And I think that's where the UFOs come in, because the UFOs are, are win within probably these higher levels of consciousness and are dropping back in, in one way or another. Because yeah. the daemon is, daemon is, I argue, the daemon is spirit guides. When people, mediums have spirit guides. It's the daemon. People hear voices. It's the daemon. How does the daemon know the future? How do the voices know what's going to happen? Well, because they've lived your life before. They know it because they've lived it. Then you attune higher up and you can get even broader knowledge, which is what people with when they go into deep levels of concentration, they attune into. Um, one final example, for instance, there's a, an associate of mine who has temporal lobe epilepsy. And a few years ago, she was given what's called a WADA the WADA test, which is they 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 inject sodium mammitol into the carotid artery to deaden the dominant hemisphere of the brain so they can find out how the non-dominant hemisphere works. She told me she felt her personality disappear as the dominant hemisphere lost consciousness. And yeah, suddenly yeah. this other thing came into her head that was her, but not her. She said it was the universal me. It was the me I attune into in dreams. It was the other me. And then it faded away again as the sodium amatol wore off. That to me is evidence that my hypothesis has legs. Yeah. That's that's incredibly fascinating. And I, I appreciate you sharing everything you've shared here. Uh, uh, where could, where could everybody find your work? Right. Okay. Okay. In terms of uh, my books, my books are in libraries. I mean, I know I say to people, you don't have to go out and buy my books. You can go into your local library and you'll either find a copy or copies of them, or you can order them from the library. So it would just be a, a cost of paying a few pence or a few cents to get the, them delivered to you. You can go into, they're all on Amazon. Uh, you can order them from bookshops. Some bookshops do have them on the, on the shelves, both in the UK and the USA and Europe. Um, my books are in virtually every single European language, both minor and my, major and minor. Two of my books recently came out in Greek, for instance um you can find my books on audible um i had to audition to read my own books on audible that's crazy um, but yeah <laughs> it's very true but if you, if you if you really want to help me buy the books on audible because i i get a lot more because i'm also the talent that does the reading um you can also it's on kindle it's on ebooks um you can also order books off my website but i would strongly advise not to do that because just to stress i'm not self published you know, publishers yeah, pay yeah. me, you know, I'm, I'm not a self-published guy. Um, so it's the publishers that that do the driving and the marketing and everything else as well. They pay me in advance and I write a book. So that's why I'm not that bothered if people go to libraries, you know, yeah. it's not. No, I'm, I'm going to say Amazon's probably the way to go for most people because it's so universal. It is. But if you and... go off my website, the word of warning is if you're in the States, yes, you, I can send you signed copies of my books, but because of the postage costs, 
these yeah. days. Yeah. If yeah. you're going to pay as much as the cost of the book just to have my signature. Now, if you want my signature, that's great. But if anybody is interested and wants to meet me and wants more to know more about it, I'll be speaking in um, in Indian Wells in California uh, at next year's breaking uh, um, contact in the desert. Yeah. Uh, and I will I, at the moment I'm in negotiation, so it looks like I might actually be doing Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. Oh wow! Um, yeah. So they've asked me to do an additional day on the Thursday, and I'll be talking about quantum mechanics and yeah. wave particle duality. Yeah. We're still negotiating that, but and come along. It, it was great last year. Um, yeah. And you do have a YouTube channel people can check I do, out I, too. I do. I've I've stopped the YouTube channel now. All the materials on there. Um, but I find that, um, you know, I've decided that probably I've got enough material on there now. Um, but, yeah, the YouTube channels there all I've interviewed virtually so many people from Jeff Kripal, you know, for instance, that you mentioned earlier on uh, Whitley Strieber. I think Whitley Strieber did interview me. But anyway, I've got virtually all the researchers in this subject matter that have been on there at one stage or another. Um, so please check it out and have a look at it as well. Um, there's some good stuff on there as well. Um, yeah, and then put it all including the including a live incident where I tested somebody who has superior autobiographical memory, where she remembers everything that happened in her life. Yeah, and we tested her live. She she um, she there's only one of eight people I think in the world that has this. She remembers everything. Yeah, and what happened was while we were live, I, t I tested her and I turned around and I said I understand that you. Um, you love Harry Potter. And she said, yeah, I've got all these books. My assistant on the show has got a daughter who likes Harry Potter. So I asked my assistant to take a book off at, the, off, off at random from the bookcase, open it at random and read the first two or three words of a paragraph. She only got two words in. The girl read the whole paragraph out from her mind. I did that live. Yeah. That's the power of the human mind. Yeah. And that, that's a great uh, note to end it off on because, uh, you know, again, this channel, I, I explore, uh, you know, UFOs and contact, but um, very much human potential, you know, and, and with that consciousness. So, uh, you know, thank you so much for coming on. I, I definitely hope to have you on again, because this is a fascinating discussion and I really appreciate your work and I'm going to continue going through all your books categorically. <laughs> and I thought just to say, James, as well, it's a delight to speak to somebody who actually knows his stuff as well you know it's really you know everything i was saying you were picking up on you were aware of as well and that makes it so much easier when you're being interviewed and I it means we bounce off each other and you're some of the comments you made i found absolutely fascinating and very interesting so thank I appreciate you that thank you yes sir yeah thank you so much so i, I look forward to speaking to you again and uh, everybody be on the lookout for anthony's work and his appearances take care thank you see you